Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello. Uh, Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about the of the Wuhan uh, virus, the COVID-19 crisis, and, and how the U.S. should respond to um, the Chinese effort to handle it early on, which I think is uh, widely agreed to have been faulty. Uh, we've got a great program lined up, but I wanted to start uh, with a few housekeeping notes. Uh, first, all attendees are on mute. Uh, number two, uh, if you have a question, there's a box on the side, on the right side of your screen. You can type a question in there, and we will get to it in the Q&A. And then uh, the third thing is that the session is being recorded and will be uh, will be archived on the Heritage Foundation website for viewing later. You know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, uh, Chinese responsibility for um, the COVID crisis, how it could have acted earlier. Um, a lot of talk about um, uh, the origins of the crisis. Um, you know, and our our effort here is to sort through some of that. And, and come up with some good ideas about how to hold the Chinese accountable for, for what happened, especially early on. Uh, in fact, I don't think we want to get into much about the, the connection to the laboratory and, and some of those sort of um, uh, sort of detective work going on there, not because it's not important, it's obviously important, but um, uh, you know, it's a little bit beyond scope. We want to narrow in on, on uh, what needs to be what needs to be done here to, to hold the Chinese accountable for uh, their handling uh, of the crisis, basically. Um, to do that, I think we need to focus on two things. Uh, what should be our aim? Uh, are we trying to compel the Chinese into more responsible behavior? Uh, is there any hope for achieving that? Um, or are we seeking to punish the Chinese uh, for the way that they handled the crisis? I think that's an important thing to clarify. Exactly what is it that we're or after. And the second thing I think we need to focus on is um, what what can we do that's effective to to either one of those ends, and how do we pursue it without uh, damaging uh, American interests? Um, so we have some interests with Chinese in the broadest sense, of course. Uh, uh, we have a lot of conflict with the Chinese uh, also, uh, but we don't want to um, hurt our own to control infectious diseases uh, or impact economic relationships that have nothing to do with uh, the uh, the COVID crisis, et cetera. So I think we need to think that through as well. And to help us do that, we've got three excellent panelists lined up. I'm, I, uh, I know you know them already, but I first want to introduce Yachu Wang. Uh, Yachu is a China researcher at uh, Human Rights Watch. And I want to turn it over to uh, her to uh, to get us started. So, Yachu, if you'll turn on your camera. Hi. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I think at this point, everybody have some ideas. Figure clear that the virus was discovered at the end of 2019. The Chinese government hid the information, punished some doctors who tried to sound the alarm, and detained some journalists. That's what we all know. I'm going to speak on some specific events that clearly show that the government 
was deliberately lying and covering up, and that a total lack of action during that critical period has rendered us in the United States and around the world now having this pandemic for a century. So sometime in December in Wuhan, doctors were noticing a cluster of pneumonia cases with an unknown cause. And some of the people who were showing the symptoms clearly had no, not gone to the market. And in late December, doctors who treated these patients were contracting pneumonia. That was strong evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. Yet on December the 31st, the Wuhan government said, the investigation so far has not found uh, any uh, obvious human-to-human -human transmission. The government kept saying the same thing in the following days. And on January 13th, 13th there was a case discovered in Thailand. The women who was in Thailand visited Wuhan but had not gone to the market. Then two, late, two days later, there was also a case in Japan. So the joke at the time on the Chinese social media was, this virus is so patriotic, it only infects people who go abroad. On January 20th, the authorities finally confirmed that there were two cases of human-to-human -human transmission and the medical staff had been infected. This is six weeks, about six weeks at least, after the first evidence of human-to-human -human transmission emerged. So the government was lying for one and a half months. Now we all know how easily it could be transmitted between humans. So it was obvious the government was lying, not that it was confused or it couldn't figure out things. The whole time the Chinese authorities were busy lying to the public and to the world in private. It also consistently refused to share critical information with the WTO with health authorities in other countries. Then we all know in, on January 23rd, the authorities suddenly decided to cordon Wuhan, a city of 11 million. But by that time, an estimated 6 million people have already left the city. I remember that night, I was following my friends in Wuhan social media. They were live broadcasting their escape journey. It was like a thriller. When they heard the announcement, the government said, you know, we were going to quarter Wuhan starting at 9 a.m. in the morning. They grabbed their bag and ran. Why? Because I think people fundamentally don't trust the government. When New York, where I live, announced a sheltering place, I didn't run because I have some level of trust in our government to tell us the truth and to provide us with basic service. I think it's this kind of critical moment that revealed what people actually think of their government. Then there is the silence of doctors. On December 30th, Dr. Li Wenliang sent a message to a group of doctors warning them about a SARS-like virus. It's a private chat. It's not a public chat. He was just telling his former classmates about this. And for that, the next day, he was summoned to the police station and signed a statement acknowledging that he was spreading rumor, he was made to promise not to do it again. Then there were several other doctors who were similarly punished. We today know about Dr. Li Wenliang was because after he got sick, he started to talk to the media, which I think it was very brief. The Chinese government harasses and jails people who 
criticize the government. Everybody in China knows. So in order for Dr. Li to, you know, speak to the media, it was uh, act. It, it was an act of courage. So we don't know the extent of government's efforts trying to silence doctors because I believe there are many who didn't choose to speak publicly, like what Dr. Li Wenliang did about what happened to them. Then there was the disappearance of journalists. Chen Qiushi, who used to be a lawyer, who went to Hong Kong to report on the protests. And he then, after the outbreak, he went to Wuhan and started to live broadcast what he saw. He saw bags of you know, dead bodies. Um, on February the 7th, authorities took him into custody. Fang Bing is a local businessman in Wuhan. And after the outbreak, he started to do the same thing. He was doing live video talking about what he saw. On February 9th, he got detained. Now, after almost five months, we have not heard anything about them. I tried to contact their friends, try to contact their family, and the families, you know, don't want to talk about it because very likely they were harassed and threatened by the police. Um, there are other similar closes, uh, similar cases. I know probably you don't know because you know I, that's my job to know about those cases. And there are also many, many more cases. I probably have no idea about it. I'm monitoring human rights in China for over a decade now. I always try to emphasize the point that there are just so many unknowns about China. We know this guy got detained for criticizing the government. It's because he knows how to use the VPN to circumvent the internet to tell his story, or he has some brave friends who would speak up after he got disappeared by the government. There are so many more disappearances, so many detentions that we just don't know. What we know is just the tip of the iceberg. Maybe one day we will know uh, when we are able to see the Communist Party's secret archive. Thank you. Hey. Thank you, uh, thank you very much, Yachu. That was that was a, a very good start and uh, keys off uh, several issues that we hope to uh, we hope to get at uh, further in this, this conversation. So thank you, thank you very much. You come at with you come at this with a lot of expertise and experience uh, uh, firsthand. Um, next, I want to call on uh, Mike Maza. Uh, Mike is a longtime friend of the Heritage Foundation uh, from sister organization in some sense, uh, an ally anyway in so many things, American Enterprise Institute, um, where he's focused on China and Taiwan issues. Uh, but he's also a, a non-resident fellow at GMF and the Global Taiwan Institute, which uh, if you don't know, it's a small organization. It's worth getting to know because uh, Russell Shao there and, and GTI do some terrific work and, and Mike's a part of that as well. So Mike, with that, let me turn it over to you and you can take us the next step. Thank you. Great. Um, well, thank you, Walter, for the, the kind introduction. Thank you to Walter and Olivia for putting this together. And uh, kudos to Olivia on a really well done report. Um, so I, I've been asked to speak here a bit about China's approach to Taiwan over the past several months, um, about Taiwan's own response to COVID-19, and then about Taiwan's role in holding, holding China accountable. Um, and I'll tackle those topics in that order. So you know, China could have seen COVID-19 as an opportunity to stabilize ties with Taiwan, to, to attempt to, um, if not win over hearts and minds, uh, to at least try to convince people on Taiwan that, that Beijing could be flexible uh, in, in dealing with, with Taipei. 
Um, Beijing could have moved quickly to share information with Taiwan's government and to invite Taiwanese health officials or independent experts to stay and monitor the situation in Wuhan. Beijing could have worked closely with authorities in Taiwan to evacuate Taiwanese citizens in Wuhan. Um, Beijing could have cleared the path, even if only temporarily, for Taiwan's practical participation in the World Health Organization and uh, the International Civil Aviation Organization. And Beijing could have paused its years-long pressure campaign on Taiwan and, and prioritized, again, perhaps uh, maybe only momentarily, a global public health over, over prostrate politics. Um, but China did none of those things. From the early days of this pandemic, Beijing made clear that its priorities were first to continue to isolate Taiwan on the international stage, and secondly, to sustain a high level of military pressure on Taiwan, and arguably higher than it had been in the weeks and months uh, prior to the outbreak. Uh, and so instead of a Chinese policy that aimed to avert the spread of the novel coronavirus to Taiwan and to support the Tsai administration's efforts to ensure the health and well-being of Taiwan citizens at home and abroad, we got a Chinese policy which arguably had uh, the opposite effect. Taipei continued to face restrictions on its engagement with the WHO. The Chinese government played games with Taiwan's efforts to uh, repatriate citizens in Wuhan. And, and the People's Liberation Army has conducted military exercises with the clear aim of demonstrating its advancing capabilities um, and, and intimidating, intimidating Taiwan. Taiwan's response to manage an exemplary response to COVID-19 and then share its experience and its non-faulty medical supplies with the world. Um, in a nutshell, Taiwan implied a whole of government approach that relied on rapid response, transparency, proactive searches for possible cases, um, the use of big data and and aggressive contact tracing, and, and government support for the sick and quarantined. You know, I, I think it can't help but uh, contrast this with what Yachio just described um, in, in China's own response to COVID-19. Um, for, for a really detailed account of, of Taiwan's handling of the pandemic, I would commend you to a short paper by um, three authors, Jason Wong, Chun Ng, and Robert Brook. It's available for free online. Um, it's very accessible uh, and again really lays out um, the, the various tools that Taiwan brought to bear in order to ensure a an effective response to the outbreak uh, but but suffice to say with, with under 500 cases and only seven deaths Taiwan's handling of COVID-19 has been truly remarkable um, now to the final question that's been posed to me can Taiwan play a role in holding China accountable um, and, and I would add perhaps more importantly should it and bottom line up front here is I think Taiwan should proceed cautiously. Uh, these are dangerous times for Taiwan. In late March, uh, the head of Taiwan's intelligence agency testified in an open hearing in the legislature um, that in light of Chinese domestic challenges, he pegged the likelihood of uh, China using force against Taiwan tomorrow at a six or seven out of 10, with 10 being very likely. Um, you know, the United States is at least momentarily weakened, as are many of its allies. Uh, global economic challenges seem likely to persist for some time, and, and Xi Jinping, of course, remains eager to swallow Taiwan whole. Um, so again, I, I think the bottom line here is to proceed cautiously. I think when it comes to holding China accountable for its COVID-19 misdeeds, I see the most important role for Taiwan to play as one of sharing information with the United States and other partners. Um, it certainly has scientific and medical knowledge to contribute into an inquiry uh, to to contribute to an inquiry into the outbreak. Um, it has a knowledge of the Chinese political system and of the CCP's internal workings uh, that few can match. 
and to the extent that sharing that knowledge can support efforts to develop a more a, 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 a comprehensive understanding of events of the last uh, six or more months, I, I think Taiwan should be forthcoming. Now, on the other hand, I'm not convinced it would be wise for Taipei to participate in efforts to impose costs on Beijing. There are plenty of things that Taiwan does, uh, that Taiwan needs to do, that raise China's ire. Um, and, and I think others can impose costs if, if that's deemed necessary. Personally, I don't see a need for Taiwan to paint an even larger target on its back. Uh, and, and one final word of caution on Taiwan and holding China accountable. Um, I think COVID-19 has presented Taiwan with an opportunity to deepen its ties with the United States uh, and, and expand its global engagement. And, and Taip Taipei is seeking to make the most of that opportunity. I think that's the right course of action. Uh, it should be careful, however, to avoid being used as a means to punish Taiwan. Um, in the case of the United States, for example, deepening ties with Taiwan in the wake of COVID-19 because U.S. public health will benefit, um, or taking advantage of opportunities COVID-19 offers to pursue longstanding interests, uh, I, I think would be a quite different thing than upgrading relations with Taiwan in order to hold China accountable. Uh, Taiwan is not a means of cost and position. It's rather a country with which the United States can and should pursue mutually beneficial outcomes. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, great. Uh, thank you very much, um, Mike. That was... Uh... It was an important angle, the whole Taiwan, um, whole, whole Taiwan connection to this, and and how it, uh, how it's a part of the equation going forward. Um, uh, not to speak of the um, the really irresponsible and effective way it responded to the crisis itself, and, and set an example for the world really on how how best to uh, to respond. Um, not just an example for the Chinese, in fact, but many of its neighbors and, and has some global application as well. So uh, thank you very much for that. Um, next, I want to turn to Olivia Enos. Uh, Olivia is with the Heritage Foundation, as you know. She's a senior policy analyst uh, here, and she focuses on human rights issues, uh, especially with regard to uh, Asia. But she sometimes heads up some building-wide uh, efforts that uh, uh, touch on human rights and uh, human trafficking and the like, things that she's developed quite an expertise on. Um, on this issue, in fact, she has a paper out, and Mike, Mike referenced it. It's called Holding the Chinese Communist Party Accountable for its Response to the COVID-19 Outbreak. Uh, I guess there's no coincidence that her paper came out, and we're doing an event that has a very similar uh, uh, title. In fact, we would like to attract some attention to that article. So in addition to what um, Yachu and Mike have out there, I hope you will... Um, uh, track that down because it, it does offer some very good uh, advice uh, on where policy should be headed. And I think she'll give us some some indication of that in her remarks uh, just now. So, Olivia, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Walter. And um, thank you also to Yacho and Mike for their wonderful comments. Um, I think, as Walter mentioned, the inspiration for the report was really this one simple fact um, that I think has been on full display during COVID-19, and that's that what China does internally isn't just an internal matter. China, The Chinese Communist Party's decision to conceal information about the virus um, on so many fronts to silence individuals um, ended up having significant impacts for how the world was prepared to respond to the outbreak. And it really hampered the world's ability to respond quickly um, due to the Chinese Communist Party's continued decision to obfuscate information. 
So I want to provide sort of four reasons um, or four ways rather that the Chinese Communist Party mishandled the response, some of which were covered by my co-panelists. And then as uh, Walter mentioned, I really want to focus on the solutions and uh, the way forward. So the, the four ways that really stand out are uh, first and foremost, we've seen the Chinese Communist Party misreport facts and figures, whether that's the death rates and the infection rates, um, or that's lying to the World Health Organization about whether or not human to human transmissibility of COVID-19 was possible. Of course, we know that it is. Um, Mike's colleague Derek put out, Derek Scissors put out a really fantastic paper that demonstrates the discrepancies between the total number of infections um, that took place. The Chinese Communist Party officially reports that there have only been 85,000 cases approximately, um, but Derek Scissors believes on the conservative end that there were as um, few as two 2.9 million cases and possibly as many as 4 million cases based off of very complex modeling and I would highly recommend that report. Um, but we also know from really important reporting from Radio Free Asia that the death rate from COVID-19 was definitely much higher than what was reported and so I think the world was significantly less prepared to respond. Second, um, as Yachu uh, raised this issue, uh, we saw many individuals um, who were silenced, whether that was Dr. Li Wenliang, or that was other individuals like citizen journalists like Chen Kishi or Fang Bin. Um, we also have seen China, thirdly, engage in sidelining civil society. Um, I actually have another report out that looks at the ways in which China's restrictions on faith-based organizations, but also non-faith-based organizations' ability to respond um, has been significantly limited, and that China has even limited the response of international NGOs that traditionally come to the aid when you have severe pandemics. This would be um, organizations like Doctors Without Borders or Samaritan's Purse that are usually on the front line of responses to pandemics or other forms of natural disasters, uh, but China has really sidelined them. And then fourth and finally, we heard this from uh, Mike in great detail, we've seen how China has sidelined um, critical responders like the World Health Organization, the CDC's access to China, and of course, um, Taiwan's involvement in responding as well, despite the fact that um, in Taiwan's case, they have modeled such effective responses. So I think that now we're starting to see a growing interest in holding China accountable for the myriad of ways that it really undermined um, the response to COVID-19. We see this emanating from the halls of Congress um, to the executive branch here in the U.S., but we also see this coming from calls to the World Health Organization um, to respond in fact, they've sent a team of experts now um, to actually go and investigate in China into what exactly it took place. Um, and we also have interest from international actors, including the European Union, as well as from Australia. And of course, calls for accountability are not without risks. We've already seen China retaliating against Australia. But I think that those risks are not a reason for us to fail to respond. And so I want to outline four solutions in particular or next steps that I think should be taken. Um, first, we need to develop some sort of, sort of international investigation mechanism, one that maybe even augments the World Health Organization's efforts. I think there are some concerns about the World Health Organization's ability to carry out an unbiased investigation without the intervention of China. And so I think that there should be an effort to hold 
independent international apolitical investigation that involves the World Health Organization, but perhaps has other actors with the U.S. taking the lead, um, maybe Taiwan playing a role, and we can, you know, perhaps talk about that a little bit more in Q and A. Um, but also responsible stakeholders that would like to see China held accountable. The second policy solution or step that we can take is to sanction individuals inside China who are responsible for undermining the response. We've seen this actually called for in the halls of Congress um, and elsewhere, and there are different tools that can be used, including global Magnitsky sanctions that enable the U.S. Treasury to target individuals on human rights grounds. Third, um, the United States needs to press for the release of all political prisoners, um, whether that's those individuals like the citizen journalists who are forcibly disappeared, as well as political prisoners that extend beyond the COVID-19 crisis, including the between one and three million Uyghurs who are currently held there, as well as other religious prisoners of conscience, um, like Pastor Wang, who is presently held in China on political and unjust grounds. Fourth and finally, we would call on the Chinese government to be better about including civil society organizations, not only in the response to COVID-19, but also in other contexts as well. I think it's clear that China has mishandled many aspects of the COVID-19 response. And so I'm excited uh, during Q&A to be able to chat through other ways that perhaps my co-panelists are thinking through um, means for holding China accountable. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Olivia. Um, I wonder if I could ask the other uh, panelists to join us uh, on the screen as we turn to the, uh, the Q&A portion here. Um, one thing I'd like to follow up on, um, and we've got a question uh, about this as well um, from our viewers. Uh, one thing I would like to follow up on is this international investigation issue. Um, I mean, the question that came in had to do with uh, how much international support there is for this, which I, which I think is, is a good question, but I also think that Olivia addressed that a little bit. So anything you want to add there? Uh, but I think the more important question here is how effective can that be? I mean, I think the, the, the problem with the WHO-led uh, uh, led investigation is the suspicion that, well, if the Chinese agreed to it, it can't possibly be useful, right? Uh, but on the other hand, you have to have the Chinese involved in it or you can't get into the country or you can't really do anything here. So how do you sort through those uh, those different uh, dilemmas. Let me let me start with um, let me start with Olivia since she just addressed it, and then we we'll just go down a line to Mike and uh, and Yachu. Great. Yeah, I was going to say I'll I'll go ahead and take a stab at that. I think that the big question um, is what is the motivation for holding an an international accountability effort or an international investigation? And I think the answer to that is not only you know to name and shame China for the way that it mishandled COVID, but also to identify lessons learned um, so that we don't have a repeat of what's happened during the p pandemic. Because you know I and I don't think I I didn't have a chance to cover this. But um, the silencing of Dr. Li Wenliang was hardly the first time that we have had whistleblowers silenced in the midst of um, public health crises. In fact, this happened during the SARS outbreak as well, 
where they also silenced um, a doctor who was trying to give color to the extent to which SARS was a problem. And so we've already seen the Chinese um, Communist Party engage in the same behaviors that they engaged in during SARS, during COVID-19. And we don't want to have a future COVID-19 where the situation is the same. I think that one of the things that's really remarkable about a call for an international investigation is that this isn't just a US-led effort, or this isn't just a World Health Organization effort either. This is something that we're seeing from all over the globe. There's interest from Australia, there's interest in the EU. I think Germany and Sweden have said that they're interested in this. Um, I, I would have a hard time imagining that allies like Japan and Korea could be you know, kind of called to our aid um, if we wanted them to join in to some sort of investigation. And so I think that there is a lot of interest. And I think, as I mentioned, Capitol Hill, the executive branch, of course, domestically, there's a lot of interest too. Um, but I think that uh, we should capitalize on that, um, especially while attention is focused on COVID-19. But I think, you know, right. thinking through exactly what that investigation would look like, it's, I think there's a lot of gray area and room for, for maneuvering. Yeah, well, you know what, uh, Mike, before you answer that, let me, let me, put a, a finer point on it for you in that um, I guess I'm I'm of the more skeptical crowd about how far some of our friends and allies are willing to go uh, with the Chinese. And uh, I guess uh, already the Chinese agreement to, um, uh, to allow for the WHO to get involved in this has, um, you know, given an opportunity to Australia and some others maybe to declare victory and move on. Um, so in light of the action that WHO is actually taking, will we maintain this um, international concern, solidarity for getting to the bottom of the, of the problem, or do you think that will dissipate? Uh, it's a good point, and I, I share your concerns about how reliable our allies will be going forward. I do think you know, the Australians, as you say, declared victory uh, when uh, the WHO moved forward on investigation, even though it was not remotely, I think, what the Australians originally called for. I mean, I think we're going to see continuing international uproar to some extent because you know, even the Australians are continuing to get, to get hammered by the Chinese over this issue, even though it's now several weeks in the past. Um, but, but one way to, to sort of make this a, a U.S.-led international effort, if you will, is to have Congress um, establish their own um, independent you know, investigatory committee, right? We've done this in the past with Defense Strategy Review Board. Um, and you make the, the, the makeup of that international in nature. So you, you hire to staff this, you know, this investigation, you hire international epidemiologists and uh, medical practitioners and sinologists. Um, and to, you know, to your earlier point, China may not, or is unlikely to cooperate which is unfortunate, but it's also illustrative. I mean, I think that that serves a purpose too. So um, something like that, I think, serve as a, uh, a, a complementary effort to one that, um, you know, the, the WHO slash China is, is running. Um, and not going to be able to answer all the questions we have because of the access that would likely be denied, um, but, but may answer some of the questions we have more honestly than the, the current investigation will. Yeah, that's that's an excellent idea, actually, um, getting Congress involved in its own separate independent uh, effort. I mean, I think that the fact that the Australians took the lead on this, and I think it's fair to say that they took the lead early on in calling for 
an investigation, even at the expense of American leadership. Uh, but I think that was actually a good a good thing uh, because anything that the U.S. calls on like that is captured in some sort of broader um, geopolitical showdown or, or great power competition or, or that sort of thing. Now, from the Beijing perspective, Australia is not much better. It's just the American deputy sheriff or the or the gum on the bottom of Beijing shoe, as it was once called just a few years ago. Uh, but you know, to get to get others involved, the Japanese and, and, and the Europeans, especially in leadership roles, I think is a good idea. But but also getting Congress uh, more involved independently. And, and Congress is used to doing things that turn out to be symbolic, right? So uh, it's it's a very very good idea. Something we should consider. Consider. Uh, Yachu, anything you want to add here? Yeah, I think I mean. If you go to China and do the investigation, you're gonna face officials who are not going, probably, you know, not going to tell you the full truth. But uh, you know, as my part of my job, I have connections with civil society, and there are people who are journalists, citizens who have experience, and there are you know doctors who don't wanted to speak. So I think uh, you know the international community needs to find ways to bypass the Chinese officials to speak to Chinese people directly. I do think there were a lot of desire to wanted to tell, you know, what uh, people who have experienced or who people know something that they don't want it to be public. They don't want to be punished to speak publicly. But, uh, you know, the international community needs to find a ways to reach out to those people. Yeah, you know what, that that raises a really interesting angle on all of this that, that I've been trying to sensitize people to from the beginning, because I, I think most people have come to this issue in the last six months. That is the issue of China and how it operates and how it responds to crisis. I've almost the impression that it's like North Korea in terms of its isolation and that, uh, you know, the, we're never going to get the truth, et cetera. But in fact, there are a lot of... Uh, connections to China, right? So you have on the U.S. side, you have people who have friends there and family there and can pick up the phone and call, even can call a doctor, right? Somebody they know who's a doctor and say, hey, what's going on in in, uh, in uh, Wuhan? We heard this story, is it right? I mean, is there is that kind of interaction on a on a person-to-person basis, despite the best efforts of the Chinese Communist Party? Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think people are usually worried if, you know, if I talk to you on WeChat, if I talk to you on the phone, uh, I would be discovered by the government because surveillance in China is very severe and all encompassing. So I think one advice I would give to the international community is to be careful. How do you reach out to people safely? And there are ways. I mean, I've been doing this job telling people how to communicate with me securely for the past decade. So I Mm -hmm. think there are ways to do that. Yeah, and I think it also goes uh, goes to the availability of information that even though the Chinese lie on uh, official statistics and, you know, lying, okay, lying is lying regardless of the extent of it, but but sometimes it's just smoothing statistics, making them look a little bit better or actually sometimes a little bit worse, whatever serves the party's interest at, at any particular time. But there's such a wealth of statistics that you can tell when they're being uh, manipulated because the party's not always careful enough to check every box and make sure every you know, cell phone prescription uh, subscriptions, for example, were brought up during the Wuhan crisis as an indication that maybe things are worse than they seem. So there's enough openness, actually, that there's tons of information out there that if you really know what you're looking at, you can see uh, 
you know, how far the official narrative is from reality, right? Um, Olivia, I wanted to come back to you with a question because you talked about civil societies and, um, and the role that civil society can play in managing um, a crisis like this, especially in the early stages of, um, uh, of trying to manage the outbreak. And, uh, you know, there's some very hardcore people on this sort of, sort of people that are used to dealing with crises, you know, um, uh, military and maybe some healthcare professionals too that are skeptical about the role that civil society plays. Uh, so it might be worth just sort of taking that head on. Where, where do you see the sort of things that um, NGOs and the like, either international or in China, where do you see them playing a role in this sort of situation? Well, I loved what Yacho said about, you know, really engaging with civil society as a source for information. I think that that's really important and really critical because I think so often we focus on government to government solutions to challenges when really it's ordinary people on the ground who have the greatest insight and, and the most value. But, um, you know, my point both in in this paper and also the paper that I wrote early on in the crisis about how the Chinese government was sidelining civil society was that, you know, oftentimes civil society, whether faith based or otherwise, are the first to arrive and the last to leave in the midst of a humanitarian disaster, whether that's a health crisis or an earthquake or something of these sorts. And um, people think civil society and they think, oh, it's just, you know, people on the ground talking with other people. No, no, no. Doctors Without Borders has some of the greatest expertise to be able to provide on the on the ground demand and meet the, the needs that others who are not actually on the ground can't know that they need to meet. And same with Samaritan's Purse. I mean, I think Samaritan's Purse even played a, a very small role early on where um, I think they had some equipment that was shipped over to China, but otherwise they were limited in their ability to operate um, on the ground. But they are really invaluable um, to any sort of response. And unfortunately, the Chinese Communist Party is so, you know, hellbent on claiming credit as being the sole resolver of challenges, whether it's a health crisis or otherwise, that they choose to sideline civil society. And I think, you know, uh, the United States and other democratic actors need to push on this because it's really we need to communicate to the Chinese people that we have the Chinese people's best interests at heart, that when we provide civil society assistance from the outside, we're there to provide help for them. We're not there to gain critical acclaim, which is a huge contrast to the Chinese Communist Party and their own motivations in trying to resolve the challenges. Thank you, Olivia. Uh, yeah, I mean, information is a big is a big thing that the um, that civil society can play a role in facilitating information. Uh, unfortunately, that's the thing that the Chinese are most paranoid about is information, and, and they've tried to uh, clamp down on NGO activity, international and internal, uh, for, for many years now uh, in an effort to to prevent the free flow of information. Um, Yachu, there's a really good question um, for you here. Um, has there been any indication that there's a push for accountability within China itself? What's what's the where is the public now in China in terms of uh, their demands of government officials for uh, handling future crises uh, better than this or or, or basically I, I guess the uh, the deficiencies that the whole crisis point to in the way that CCP uh, uh, handles itself generally. I think there are two stages 
when people were still in the pan, uh, in the outbreak, uh, the government was still trying to con control the situation. Really, really angry, especially if you see how people responded to Dr. Li Wenliang's death. There were just outpouring of messages, anger, actually, social media, despite the censorship. So at that time, people really wanted to, you know, demand uh, accountability. Um, however, then later, you know, with all the draconian measures that were, you know, it's unimaginable that, uh, that it would be imposed in countries like, you know, in the United States with those drastic measures the government was able to contain to a certain extent. I think with all the propaganda that it was going on, with all the censorship to, you know, uh, censor the uh, the uh, unofficial narrative, the uh, people, I think they start to buy into the government's narrative. You know, this measure is, uh, the measures were necessary. Now we won the virus war, we were together. I think there was this nationalistic pride in how China was able to do that. So I think the demand for accountability start to weigh down. And also, I see a difference between people in Hubei, in Wuhan, and the people outside of China, uh, outside of uh, the province. Because people in Wuhan, they suffered, you know, the, all these things happened to them. So they're still angry. If you talk to people who are in Wuhan, they're still in grief. But uh, my family and my friends are mostly outside of Wuhan. Like they were, maybe that, you know, what happened to the Wuhan people? Is necessary. Sorry for them, but uh, you know that was an, uh, <laughs> uh, that the government's actions protected us outside of Wuhan, outside of Hubei. So I think there were difference between the people in Wuhan, in Hubei, and people outside of mm -hmm. Wuhan. So they demand for accountability. Yeah, you know, I've got like three questions I want to jam in all at the same time. So uh, forgive me. Uh, I'm going to try to stay on time here and end at uh, 9:45. Um, but let me ask you quickly, there's, a, there's a, been reports in the last few weeks about a new outbreak in Beijing, uh, and it's not really clear exactly what the basis for that is. Is it possible that in situations like this, there's actually Chinese politics going on? I, th I think most of us are blind to the phenomenon of Chinese politics generally, for obvious reasons, because it's all, it's all secret. It all has to uh, pay deference to CCP or at least... Uh, or at least operates in fear of the CCP in some places. But uh, what do you make of the current uh, outbreak in Beijing? And uh, is, or could there be political motivations behind some of this? That is sort of factional or, or inter, uh, intra-CCP politics going on. I mean, obviously, because I talk to, I have some connections with people in the government, not in Beijing, but in other areas. For them, the, you know, the paramount goal during that period is to not have cases. So there was a guy who was suspe you know, suspected, of, you know, for, uh, he came from another country, he was suspected of bringing the virus, so like literally the local official were hunting down this person in such a, like, you know, urgency. And uh, uh, I, you know, there was a source, he works for the government, she works for the government, she was tasked to take temperatures. And she was I don't know whether this thing works or not, but we're just doing the job of taking temperatures. Like I have low confidence in the equipment, but I'm just, just doing all the job that I'm supposed to do as a bureaucrat. So there was a political goal and people were just playing their parts. So to what extent people have confidence in you know the measures, in the tests, I don't know. I mean, that's just how yeah. the system works. Right, right, right. 
Well, I was sympathetic to, to her concerns, having just gone to the barber shop the other day and had my temperature checked before I got my haircut. So I'm not sure how, how effective any of that is either. Uh, Mike, I wanted to wind up on, on you here. Um, uh, and I uh, ask this question because I want to be completely fair and I'm not censoring, I'm not trying to drive us to any particular conclusion. Um, because we got a question that, that says, what sort of considerations must we take to keep these efforts from being derailed by the current US-China uh, competition? And I think it's a fair question because we think about the Wuhan uh, or COVID crisis in, in the context of US-China competition and that it's just one more link in that. But is it at some, um, in some degrees, some degree an issue we have to protect from competition as in order to get uh, appropriate and, and useful cooperation, we need to put it in a different box. So i let you uh, end with uh, the answer to this question. Uh, thanks for that very easy question, Walter. Um, <laughs> so I, in an ideal world, we would be able to sort of separate these issues out, right? So you know, COVID-19, obviously, it's, it's a global public health issue. Imagine that we didn't have concerns with the Chinese Communist Party, that the U.S.-China relationship was very positive, um, or, or that it, it wasn't, but we just, we were not, we had not embraced this competition aspect or framework. You know, obviously there's a, there's a great need to, to tackle this issue internationally. There's no single country can handle it alone. We, we want to uh, develop vaccines, develop treatments, get those things out as quickly as we can. And, and China undoubtedly has a role to play in that. Um, on the other hand, I, I think it's uh, I think it's folly to think that we can really segregate COVID-19 from the U.S.-China competition. Um, and for for all the reasons that um, I think uh, Yachio and Olivia described, right? That the the outbreak is an extremely potent reminder of why the CCP you know, poses such a challenge and, and indeed a threat to not just to the United States, but to, to all of its neighbors globally. Um, it, it poses a global challenge. And so while we should try to uh, cooperate in um, developing vaccines and treatments, I, I don't see a problem in that. I don't think we wanna uh, you know, uh, cease all sorts of um, medical trade, medical cooperation with, with China, um, the, the fact of the matter is, is that you know, the outbreak uh, is just one more piece of, of uh, one more piece of proof, one more rationale for why this competition framework is the is the appropriate one um, to pursue to adopt. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's a very good way to answer it. I think I think you're right about so much of that. Um, well, thank you very much, all of you, for, for uh, leading this, this conversation. I want to thank our audience for joining us today. Um, look forward to continuing the conversation. I hope you will read everyone's uh, work that's uh, represented here today to dig down a little bit deeper on the details. But uh, thank you very much, and uh, have a good day.